chapters 45 to 57. You can find this in page blue, uh, sorry, <laughs> in page 872 in the navy blue Bibles. John chapter 11, starting from verse 45. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Then one of them named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God, to bring them together and make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. Therefore, Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the people of Judea. Instead, he withdrew to a region near the wilderness, to a village called Ephraim, where he stayed with his disciples. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, many went up from the country to Jerusalem for their ceremonial cleansing before the Passover. They kept looking for Jesus and as they stood in the temple courts, they asked one another, what do you think? Isn't he coming to the festival at all? But the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that anyone who found out where Jesus was should report it so that they might arrest him. This is the word of the Lord. One of the great joys I have is um, I get to sing all of those songs knowing what I've been looking at all week and what I'm going to be talking about and uh, it's good stuff. We sing good songs. But you may not know that or may never know that because you may not understand what I'm saying. Uh, so I need help. Before I do that though, I'd like to share with you, if we can go back to the um, finance slide there, Sean. I just, we don't often talk about finances in our church. If you're a regular here, you know that. We don't take up an offering in our church service. We encourage everyone as far as possible to give electronically and to make that commitment before God. You will have noticed in our bulletin that our shortfall on our budget is now at $14,000-odd against a budget of $7,900, and that's been growing steadily throughout the financial year. Um, In other words, we're not giving as much as we've budgeted to spend. Now, things aren't critical at the moment because we do have reserves for that shortfall, but it's true that we are spending more than we are receiving. Now the big, the big impact of our spending is the wages of myself, Johnny and Winnie and the big thing that's put our budget up is taking Winnie on at the start of this year as our admin manager. Now I don't know about you but from my perspective she's transformed our church life <laughs> in terms of getting things done and getting things organised and knowing what we're doing and I'm hoping we're going to see even more real fruit out of that in terms of people saved. It's taken a year to get things just organised and I think Winnie's been a great investment. Uh, So what I'm asking you to do is to take that shortfall seriously and to ask God what your response might be. One of the 
beauties of electronic giving and we don't take up, we don't ask for money hardly ever and we don't take up an offering. One of the downsides is, is people set their electronic giving and they never go back and reset it because it's just a bit of a hassle. You know, it takes well, five minutes to go and, and change it. Um, and, and I get that because um, there's not that prompt. So I'm encouraging you, if you do give electronically at the moment, to before God say, well, am I giving enough to support the work of our church? Um, we have great plans for next year too, um, God willing. We're trying to work those out in process at the moment. We do have these blue forms which are available in the foyer which give a philosophy of giving in our church, if you'd like, uh, why we want, need to be a generous church and, and how we seek to give. And it also has details on how you can give. Um, you can give through your internet banking automatically. You can give through Baptist Financial Services by credit card or by direct deposit at no cost to yourself and no cost to the church. So if that's what I do. I give by credit card because I get reward points and I get six weeks free money and I pay my stuff off on time. I don't incur big debt through that. And as far as I see, it's a win-win-win. But, um, or you can put money in the box which is in the foyer or cash checks in the box in the foyer. The other thing is if you're relatively new and you haven't or maybe even new to Christian faith, or maybe you're a young person who's always said that mum and dad have given and I just turned up to church and now I'm earning, can I challenge you to think about what God call, might be calling you to do to support his work and to be a generous person? Because that is non-negotiable. I never, have, I, I never apologise for asking you to give money, even if there's too many requests. Why should we apologise for that? Because we, we're called to be generous people, uh, supporting good work. So I encourage you to think about church. Possibly, if you haven't picked up one of these and read through it or are unsure as to how to give to Pano, grab that blue form there out in the foyer. Thank you for listening to me on that topic. Let me pray. Father God, open up your word to us so that things I've been excited about might excite all of us and more than that, Lord, might change us as your spirit gives us strength. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We've been doing four talks in John 11, which I've titled Hope Out of Hopelessness. And the first talk, well, Lazarus died. It was called Death. The second was called Hope because Jesus says, I am the resurrection life as he comes. The third was called Resurrection because Lazarus is raised from the dead and leaves the tomb. And you might expect the fourth term, Death, Hope, Resurrection, Glory. There's this nice sequence. That's instead the last talk is called rejection, death, hope, life, resurrection, rejection. That's no way to finish a series like this, is it? Because nobody likes this idea of rejection. Well, here is the promise of God in the scriptures. If you follow Jesus, if you hear and believe in him, hear him and believe and then obey, you will move from death to life, from darkness to light, from the kingdom of Satan to the kingdom of God. You will know life, new life, which will be a, be a new resurrection life and your eternity is secured and that eternity starts now and it will be glorious. That is what God promises in the Bible. It's fantastic. And here is the promise of God in Scripture. If you follow Jesus, if you hear and believe and obey and commit your life to him, you will face rejection. You know, you go to work, you tell your family, I've, I've become a Christian. I became a Christian on the weekend. 
I've, I've started to follow Jesus. It's like, what? You become a Christian, your family, if they're not believers, they're probably going, no! Your workmates are going, oh, no! Oh, we've got this Christian in our mob now. Or, or, or perhaps worse, oh, that's nice. They go away and talk, oh, let's become a Christian. Can't be. You see, you become a disturbance to the status quo. You become a bit of a threat. Because to become a Christian supposes that you have new life that they don't have. It supposes that you have a truth that you're convicted of that they do not share. It says you have a Lord and a Master that they will not follow. Perhaps the greatest... You have committed yourself to a new way of life that they do not want. And they, in fact, frankly, they don't even want it in their family. They don't even want it in their workplace. And you're committed. Peter, the Apostle Peter, and a great, we did this some of this last year. One, Peter, it's all about this sort of stuff, about being in exile. Peter says, so you started to follow Jesus. As a result, you do not live for your earthly lives, for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you've spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing and detestable idolatry. And they are surprised that you don't join them in their recklessness, wild living, and they heap abuse on you. Why aren't you... Rejoicing in what we rejoice in. Why aren't you joining us in this revelry, in this carousing, in this drunkenness? And Peter goes on to say, how do you respond? Well, here's what you do if you've made that commitment to follow Jesus. You just keep doing good. Just do good despite the slander. What you do is you take up the cross of Jesus and you take it up and you walk with it with joy. That's how you respond. In John 11, this pattern of rejection is there. Death, hope, life, resurrection, rejection. See, Jesus has just done the most, the greatest good imaginable. He is, he is, we think it's good when a doctor saves a life or if someone jumps into a stream. Jesus has taken a dead man and raised him to life. What could be more good? And he finds himself reviled and rejected. It, in fact, it's a hopeless situation at the end of this chapter. But we have to ask, does God have a greater purpose in this hopelessness? Is there actually hope out of this hopelessness? Because I want you to understand by the end, probably the big thing I want you to understand is with Jesus, wherever you might find yourself, however hopeless it might seem, there is always hope out of the hopelessness with Jesus. See, as we come to these verses, we might think this is Jesus' finest hour. He has fed crowds in the wilderness with next to no food. He has given sight to the blind. He has healed a man who was a lame and invalid for 38 years. And now he raises his friend Lazarus from the dead who was dead and buried for four days. Now Lazarus is from a prominent family living near Jerusalem. And people get to touch him and to talk to him. 
And there were many, many people there who saw him come out of the tomb wrapped in his grave clothes. This, who can do that sort of stuff? Well, this is obviously messianic work. This is God at work. What do you do with this Lazarus guy? Well, you hear Jesus, you believe him and you obey him because he's obvious that he's worth believing in. Therefore, verse 45, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did believed in him. They believed like Martha did in verse 27. She said, Lord, I believe that you are the Messiah, God's promised king. I believe you are the son of God who is to come into the world. There is fulfillment of all those promises in my lifetime, in you. You're the one. You're the Messiah. You're the king. You're the world transformer. But, 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 but do you see if you make that conclusion, if you look at the signs and make that conclusion as some of these people do, that makes Jesus Messiah. That makes him Lord. That makes him the king. That means he's the boss. That means in response you need to humble yourself and hand over your allegiance and start following him because he is the new king. But what if I'm boss? What if I think a lot of people follow me? Or what if I'm at least boss of myself? I have self-rule, self-autonomy. That makes this Jesus a threat, doesn't it? But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees, all these ruling head honchos of religion, called a meeting of the Sanhedrin, that's the council of religious Jewish leaders, What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. So all the head honchos get together and they're not arguing about the signs. And they're not arguing about what the signs signify, what they mean. Jesus is doing the things the Jewish Messiah should do. And he's doing it with power. And that is a big cause for concern. Because, and it's some reasonable, a reasonable level of concern because there is risk here. There had been other pretenders who had come along and raised up people and said, I am the Messiah. And every time that happened, somebody came in and smashed them all. Because they weren't the Messiah. They were a pretender. We don't want a pretender. But you could just look at the signs, couldn't you? And you could follow the signs. Is Jesus different? But even if they look and follow, they may not want to look. They may not want to follow because he's going to be a threat if he is the Messiah. Who wants social order overthrown? A whole new regime. Who wants, more particularly, my power, my autonomy overthrown see is Jesus a threat is he Lord or is he both one thing is for certain you cannot ignore this man who does these things what are we going to do about Jesus there's the question of the ages 
What are we going to do about Jesus? Not just in John 11. The question through the ages is, what are we going to do about those people who follow Jesus? Who call him Lord? That is his body, the church. Well, the high priest that year, we had a long reign as high priest, really the chairman of the board, the head honcho in the Sanhedrin, he has quite a clear answer. He says, kill him. And this guy, he's quite showing some quite good leadership skills here. You might want to emulate some of this. Then one of them named Caiaphas, who was high priest, spoke up, you know nothing at all. You do not realise that it's better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. You ninnies. You've been thinking about this. You've been talking about this. Just do it. One man must die so we can save the entire nation. He says so piously as his status as high priest is threatened by the Messiah. Jesus is a threat. What do you do when the leech starts crawling up your leg and the threat threatens you? You eliminate the threat. Problem solved. It's obvious. You notice Caiaphas is not concerned with justice, just expediency. He's saying, why are you, why are you making this so complicated? One bloke. I don't know if any of them said it. I think perhaps some of them said, but, but do we really want to kill God's Messiah? Like Caiaphas, do we really want to... If you look at the signs... What do we do about Jesus? What happens with Jesus is a familiar pattern through the ages. Um, a few years later, the Romans are the boss. They've got a huge empire. But people start following this Jesus who they say is alive and resurrected from the dead. And, and, they share, and this message spreads like wildfire throughout the Roman Empire, which means that all these people, instead of saying Caesar Kaiser is Lord, they're saying Jesus is Lord. And they're doing good and they're forming these gatherings and well, the Roman Empire the emperors don't look do that like they've got to get rid of these people. What do we do about these Jesus people? Kill, crush, destroy. We'll feed them to the lions, we'll put them in the Colosseum, we'll crucify them, we'll burn them. And Church Father Tertullian had that famous phrase, and the blood of the martyrs was the seed of the church. The more they were crushed, the more they grew. The more hopeless the Romans made it for this Christian movement, the more hope sprang forth from this Christian movement. And it hasn't stopped for 2,000 years. Jesus' followers are perceived as a threat. Let's crush them. Let's get rid of them. Let's make them afraid. They'll, they'll die. So for what, for 80 years in communist states? Islamic states throughout the ages kill, crush, destroy the Christians? North Korea today, kill, crush, destroy, no threat. Kill Jesus off, we will have the victory, we will rule. 
and the threat will be gone. And I wonder, I think it's being repeated today where we live in smaller measure. So let's make it hopeless for these Christians. Let's mock them. Let's put them down. Let's restrict what they can do or say. No one can survive our onslaught. But it doesn't work and it never has. And it won't. Because the seed gets fertilised and the hope springs forth. In Christ, it grows out of apparent hopelessness. It's so ironic. The Sanhedrin, there they are discussing and debating in verse 53, say these religious leaders. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. I actually don't like the word plotted there. That word is, if you look up the dictionaries, is more decided or resolved or determined. I, think, I like the word resolved in that context. They now have a strategic plan rather than wishful thinking. You can imagine the committee meeting of the Sanhedrin. I don't know how they ran their committee. Maybe they didn't know about Robert's rules, but I'm sure they did. You can imagine their committee meeting. Caiaphas says, we need to kill him. Better for one man to die than the others. And they say, are you going to make that a, a formal motion, Caiaphas? And Caiaphas says, yes, I, I make a formal motion that we, we kill Jesus and they discuss it and they debate it. And then eventually they get to the stage where they say, all in favour say aye. And they go, aye. All in favour And just Joseph of Arimathea goes, nay. And Nicodemus next to him goes, nay. But everybody, oh, it's passed. And they minute it. Kill Jesus. And they make an action point for next time they meet. And they say, we better form a subcommittee to sort out the details. How are we going to kill Jesus? And they form a subcommittee and off they go. Well, you know the story. They succeeded. The subcommittee went and saw the Romans and they got the Romans on side and within weeks Jesus is dead, crucified. Awful. And you know the story. Imagine one month or thereabouts later, maybe six weeks later, the Sanhedrin meets for their monthly meeting again. Oh, we've got the previous minutes. Uh, look at uh, action points from last time. Uh, uh, kill Jesus. Uh, is, there, is there a subcommittee report? And the subcommittee is standing around like this and they're looking at each other and wondering who's going to speak up first. And in fact, the whole crowd of them are sort of... Until one brave soul says, oh, no, the Romans crucified Jesus. I think, I think we should remove that from the action points. And everyone says, yep. Because it's been weird, man. What a month. When they crucified Jesus, it went dark for three hours. And the ground shook and the temple in the curtain... It was torn in two. Like, what a freaky day that was. That was Friday. And then on the Sunday, they're a bit nervous. And on the Sunday, the stone is rolled away from the tomb and the body's gone. And, and the, the high priest, they, they're trying to bribe the guards and they're trying to make, and they start making up stories because they don't. The biggest problem is all over the city, people are saying, I've seen Jesus. And there's more and more people saying, I've seen him. He's alive. 
And so their committee meeting a month later must have been very uncomfortable. Their hopeless plans succeeded. But God had other far more hopeful plans and brought radical hope out of hopelessness. The schemes and plots to overthrow, schemed and plotted by sinful men in their pride, fell in a heap. You see, despite rejection and apparent hopelessness, Jesus reigns and God was working his purposes out for his glory. The Sanhedrin thought they were in control of the Messianic uprising. We'll control the Messiah, thank you. We're the bosses. It's Jesus with his signs, but they weren't in control. God was in control. The Father was in control. Caiaphas, good old Caiaphas, the high priest that year, you know nothing at all. You do not realise that it is better for you that one man die for the people than for the whole nation to perish. And then John has an editorial comment. He did not say this on his own. But as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And not only for the nation only, but for all the scattered people of God, to bring them together and to make them one. God is at work. And Caiaphas Though Jesus' enemy is but a mouthpiece in the hand of God, Jesus would, in God's purposes, die for the Jewish people, but not just for them, for all the scattered children of God, for you and for me, to bring us together, to make us one, his people, his assembly, his church. That's why he came. Chapter 1, John the Baptist sees Jesus in verse 29 and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb who would be sacrificed for the sin of the world. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one, the Messiah. Chapter 10, we looked at this a few weeks back. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. The reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. Jesus knew the risks of going back to Bethany so close to Jerusalem. But he went there willingly, expecting to die. Throughout the Gospel of John, when you read the word glory, very mo- almost all the time it refers to the great glory when Jesus is lifted up from the world onto a cross. For there Jesus is glorified as he dies, the sin bearer for the many. Resurrection and glory come through suffering and rejection. There is glory as Jesus sacrifices. There is glory as Jesus loves to the end. This is our God, the servant king. 
Jesus willingly became sin in our place. He bore the punishment we deserve so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So how ironic again that here in this wonderful resurrection chapter as Lazarus is raised from the tomb, the greatest hope of all in this chapter, the grounds for our hope, is spoken of prophetically by Caiaphas the high priest, Jesus' great enemy. For as Jesus dies to save his people, there we find the grounds for our hope out of the hopelessness of our lost condition. There we have atonement, a covering over of sin. There we have restoration and the hope for adoption that we might be gathered as the scattered children of God into the family of God so that we might belong and so that we might have new life and a fresh start in the kingdom, that we might have hope out of hopelessness for both Jew and Gentile. God is in control. The one dies for the many. Caiaphas says, You do not realise that it is better for one man to die than for, the, for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. That word perish, John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that whoever believes in him shall not die, shall not perish, that's the word, but have everlasting life. Jesus died so we need not perish. Jesus died for me. He died for you. And he does it at his timing. So in verse 54, it's not going to happen just now. Therefore Jesus no longer moved about publicly amongst the people of Judah. Instead he withdrew to a region near the wilderness to a village called Ephraim where he stayed with his disciples. He's probably about, we think, 20 kilometres now from Jerusalem. Close, but not close enough for them to come and grab him. Close to make a quick return there when the time was right. And now everybody's looking for Jesus. When the time was almost... When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, many went up from the country to Jerusalem for their ceremonial cleansing before the Passover. They kept looking for Jesus. And as they stood in the temple courts, they asked one another, who do you think? What do you think? Isn't he coming to the festival at all? Where is he? He should be here, but the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders. They were also looking that anyone who found out where Jesus was should report it so they might arrest him. Everybody's looking for Jesus. And even today, people are still looking for Jesus. Those authorities in North Korea, they're looking for Jesus. Politicians in Canberra, variously, in various different ways, they're looking for Jesus. Displaced refugees in Lebanon and throughout the Middle East. So many of them, they're all, they're all in different ways looking for Jesus. The Rainbow Alliance, they're looking for Jesus. Where is he? Is he a saviour or a threat? Am I looking for a king or for my enemy? Am I looking for the Lord or for the liar? Am I looking so that I may bow down before the saviour? or so that I may root him out and kill him. 
The big question is, who is he? So what are you looking for? And it really, it's not just what are you looking for, but then where is your hope? It's linked. Which Jesus are you looking for? And therefore, where is your hope? Is your hope in yourself, in your own autonomy, in your own self-rule and independence? Or is your hope in a saviour who did for you what you cannot do for yourself and who saved you from your rebellion and sin? Or can I save myself? Now, as you all know, the results came through for the postal vote on same-sex marriage. And I know that for many of you, that result would have disturbed you. It's not what we would have wanted. But the issue there with this postal vote was not the definition of marriage. And it's not a question of love or not love. The big issue is right and wrong. The big issue is how do we determine what is how do we determine what is right and what is wrong. The big issue is who is lord. Who runs the show? Who sets the rules? The big issue is there a creator god. And the scary and threatening threat that Christians bring is that we say yes there is a god who made us. And he made us for good purposes and good intentions and he made us certain ways to be healthy and to thrive and to be like him. And he knows best and we want to live within that best. That's the scary thing. That's the threatening thing because it says to the world, actually, we submit to him without compromise. Is it any wonder we feel at times marginalised and demonised? Because we are a threat. Because we believe in a creator God who loves us. And then we are perhaps, I don't want to over-dramatise, but we are perhaps about to enter an age of increasing persecution and outright resistance to Christians. As we are, at least in our society, increasingly being, seen, being portrayed by politicians and in the media as the bad guys. The guys who are stuffing everything up. Getting in the way of self-rule and autonomy and independence and people's right to do what they want to do because we say actually there's a better way. There's God's way. We are a threat to social order. What do you do then? Well, the easiest solution is to get rid of us. Can I say, I hope I'm not over-dramatising and time will tell, but please don't despair. Please, please be full of joy. Please remember that you've got a wonderful saviour and a glorious hope. And actually it works. We all struggle to put off sin. But you know if you've been living the Christian life, you know when you put off sin and you live God's way, the world's a better place. Better existence. Peter says, not long after, said, don't be surprised that they mock you and they revile you because they don't, you, they don't, you don't join them in their, in their debauchery. Peter says, in chapter 4, verse 12, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that's come on you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ 
so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. So then, those who suffer according to God should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. God is on the throne and Jesus is Lord. So do good and then when you finish, do more good. Keep loving, keep listening, keep serving, keep sacrificing and let your light shine because Jesus brings hope out of hopelessness and he's got a long, long track record of doing it in all sorts of different ways. So it pushes the question, I realise I'm going on a bit, but where is your hope? Are you hoping in the government? Are you hoping in legislation? Are you hoping for revolution? Are you hoping in the healthcare system or are you hoping in your possessions, if I just get enough nice stuff? Are you hoping in pleasure, if I just enjoy what I want to enjoy, when I want to enjoy? And if so, where does Jesus sit with those hopes? I tell you where he sits, he gets in the way. And if that's what you're doing, you're going to want to kill Jesus. Get him out of the way, squash him, erase him, because he's putting a claim on your life and your autonomy that your hope should be in him even as you pursue your own hope and he gets in the way. How are your securities going to reward you? Let's trust in politicians. I've done that a few times. I've said, yeah, I thought Nick Griner was great when he came. I'm old. Yeah, then Kevin Rudd, he's going to be great. I've trusted in politicians. Man, every time I've done it, I'm burned. No more. No more. I've said this myself. No more am I going to trust in a politician or think this guy or this girl is going to be good for us. Because they always disappoint. And is it any wonder? What about trusting in legislation? If we can just get this thing passed or this thing passed or that doesn't get passed, you reckon that's going to give hope? Legis- the law is the law. It just condemns, it gives some structure, but it doesn't give you hope. You trust in pleasure. That's the big issue today. Let me do what I want to do, how I want to do it, where I want to do it. It doesn't last. And so many of the pleasures that we pursue lead to sickness and isolation and broken relationships again and again and again and again and again until I find myself devalued of personhood, devalued of just such a cheap person who is sick and lonely and old. Just getting those thrills that I had when I was younger that were so important to me are just so much harder. How about I go on a cruise? Oh, yeah. More pleasure. It's going to make it, isn't it? You want to trust in pleasure? Put your hope there. Your possessions. (laughs) You know, that's stupid. Put your hope in health care as you die. And you know what happens? These securities do not reward you. They all fail. They are hopeless. And people get cranky. And they blame others. They'll often blame the body of Christ. But they put their hope in hopeless things. Do not put your hope in hopeless things and then turn around when you're hurting and desperate and say, your fault. A hopelessness that leads to darkness and judgment. 
in this world and the next? Will you put your hope in a crucified Saviour? <laughs> Would you put your hope in a crucified Saviour? Who died for your sins? A resurrected Lord who loves you beyond measure? The one who says, I am the resurrection and the life? Because he does bring hope out of hopelessness even through the darkest day as we've been singing. Will you submit to his rule and in him find life and something worth living for? Let me pray.